0: We've been talking about faith for the last several weeks here at Gateway. We're actually working our way through a compelling, exciting New Testament book, the book of James. And James is about as practical and in-your-face as you can get, as you've noticed in our weeks together. Today's message is almost a summary of the whole message. We call this series Faith That Works, and what we've said essentially is kind of a theme for the whole series, but a theme for today in particular, is your faith can't work for you if you don't work your faith. Faith that doesn't work, James is going to go further, faith that doesn't work is useless. It's dead faith. Okay, so I'm going to ask you this morning if you'll work with me. There are a couple of things about this passage that were challenging, and they didn't come unraveled for me until yesterday. So I'm going to stumble a little bit, but stay with me, because this is rich and it's worth us hearing. What I'd like to do is start out by kind of setting the cultural context, really take a look at, real briefly, how this speaks into the cultural soup that we live in, today's passage. Remarkably so, in fact. And then we're going to get in and dive into the message itself. We'll open up with just his opening salvo. And then he has a couple of intriguing examples, especially the second example that illustrate his point. And then don't get lost because at the very end, I want to give you what were for me a couple of real practical takeaways from this. And you may find others, but just things that I could really sink my teeth into. So before we get started, Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would break open our chests this morning and massage your truth into our hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. Bring it to life. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sin, and if anything is said here today that is not of you, I pray that you would protect us from that and that it would fall away. But Lord, what is of you planted in our hearts? In the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So, sociologists, you know, will tell us that there are six generations alive right now. The first is the GI generation. They were born 1901 to 1924. So, that makes them 88 to 111 right now. The GI generation. Second generation is the silent generation, or the builder generation. They were born between 1925 and 1946. They are somewhere between 66 and 87 right now. Next is the baby boomers, the generation that we've heard an awful lot about for 50 years. They were born between 1946 and 1964. They are 48 to 65 right now. The next generation is Gen X. Those of you who are Gen X, look, it doesn't deserve any applause. It just, just happened to be when you were born. Those of you who are Gen X were born between 1965 and 1979. You are 33 to 47. You're getting old. And then come the millennials. The millennials were born between 1980 and 1999. You are 13 to 32 right now. And then there is Gen Z, born between 2000 and the present. And you are 0 to 12. Now, just a couple of things about each of these generations. Again, to set our cultural context, you don't have to remember all that. You kind of know it anyway. You've read countless articles and seen television shows that refer to it. Let's start with the silent generation, the builders born between 25 and 46 or 66 to 87. They are the keepers of what we've come to know culturally as the traditional values. They especially valued building structures and institutions. They often equated faith with an institution. So if you were raised by this generation, or for some of you this is your grandparents' generation, they were very faithful to the Catholic church, or to the Presbyterian church, or to the Baptist church, because they built and maintained and valued institutions and tended to associate faith with those institutions. Then come the baby boomers increasingly, sociologists have noticed a divide in the baby boom generation. Of course, lots of values the baby boom generation shares in common. But this is very interesting. Increasingly, generation, sociologists talk about the early baby boomer generation, born between 46 and 55. The early baby boomers tended to be idealistic. They valued change, and they resisted structure, the structure of their parents. They often equated faith with non-traditional, meat-centered spiritual pursuits, and not the traditional institution. Then came the late baby boomers, born between 56 and 64. The late baby boomers engaged heavily in what sociologists called jonesing, or reaching for the joneses. Not Chris and Tammy Jones, but the proverbial Joneses. And so those of you who went to college in the late 70s and early 80s, and throughout the 80s, you were evidently jonesing much more than the early baby boomers. And that meant that you pursued college degrees in something practical because you wanted to go out and make a lot of money. You tended to move toward material pursuits. You valued high-paying jobs over experience, really kind of the opposite of early baby boomers. But also, along with early baby boomers, you often equated faith with me-centered spiritual pursuits. Then came Gen X. Gen X continued the jonesing, interestingly. Continued to major in things that would help you get out and get a good job. But, In the workplace, you highly valued independence. That's why the workforce changed, and nobody goes to work anymore and works for the same company for 30 years because Gen X worked for four years and said, I can make more money over there and left. And so companies began to adapt to that. They're no longer loyal to their workers either. Gen X continued to equate faith with me-centered spiritual pursuits, and Gen X, you were the first generation that dramatically shifted away from church. And then, of course, come the millennials. Now, we're still figuring out what the millennials value, both because they're young and because they're extremely confused and bizarre. But (laughs) the millennials have definitely moved away from what they see as the materialism of the generations right above them. They're not engaged in jonesing. Even those that have very, very good jobs are almost apologetic about it. It's about experience. And they want to be more engaged. They want to do good. They're an extremely selfish generation, but they want to do good. And they want very little to do with faith. At least with any kind of structured faith. They've resisted the church as an institution, and even faith as an institution, You could almost imagine one of the millennials saying with disdain, (laughs) you say you have faith, well, I do good. And I don't respect your empty faith. I want you to notice this morning that James is going to speak right into the, honestly with incredible precision, into the ingredients of the emotional and spiritual soup that make up our culture. In our passage, James is going to give us a stern warning against driving your spiritual life into the ditch on either side of the road. On the one side, he addresses what we might call concept-only faith, and this is where he spends most of his time. With concept-only faith, this is faith like an intellectual idea. Oh, yeah, I believe in God, like we said a few weeks ago. More than 94% of Americans say they believe in God, but very little of that belief translates into something that impacts their life and produces fruit. And James addresses that, that concept-only faith. But he also addresses the other side. On the other side, he addresses our attempt to do good apart from a well-grounded faith. Because you really can't. Neither will work for us. In order for faith to work for you, your faith must work. So We're going to read this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to, to turn, or if you have a Bible app. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let's look at this electric passage of Scripture. And, and again, stay with me. I'm still unpacking this myself, but with God's help, this won't be too confusing. James 2 verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And I want you to notice through this section and in other passages throughout the book of James, James uses an interesting literary device. He sets up a dialogue between speaker and reader, but also in this passage, he's going to bring in a straw man who's going to you know, ask a rhetorical question from the side. So there are really three characters that he's introduced into the dialogue to help him advance his argument. Also notice when James uses the word save here, can such faith that's apart from any actions, any fruit, any bearing fruit in our lives, can that kind of faith save you? What he means by that word save is, can that kind of faith build a meaningful connection with God? Can that kind of faith help you in your daily life, can that kind of faith bring you into ultimate union with God where you're going to spend eternity? Can that kind of faith do that? And of course the answer that he's going to argue for is no, it can't. As a rule, I think this may be what millennials have seen in those of us who are above them. They've seen a faith that doesn't really work. For some of us, it has no impact on our lives. And so they've rejected that empty faith. At least this is one of the reasons that they consistently give to pollsters for why they are rejecting the church in record numbers. By the way, this is a very familiar biblical theme. According to one commentary, I like this, he said, You only have to do the most cursory scan of the Old Testament prophets to discover a fierce condemnation of ritual piety without any practical justice for the poor. So James is not alone in this. He's affirming the Old Testament prophets and his older brother, Jesus. Verse 15. Look, suppose a brother or sister, and he's going to give what he thinks is a ridiculous example. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Okay, he offers up an obvious example to prove his point. Faith and actions, faith and the actions that accompany faith, they're inseparable. You can't have faith without the fruit of faith being manifest in your life. And we're going to hear him toss as an aside in a second the recognition that you can't go out and do good apart from faith and have it build anything meaningful for you or for others. Faith that attempts to separate from action is dead, James says. And again, here, by faith, James means this concept only, an intellectual assent to doctrine that has... Never grabs our heart, never affects how we live, never impacts our habits. Verse 18. But someone will say, straw man, you have faith, I have deeds. You hear it, millennials? It simply will not do to separate faith and deeds. Real faith, faith that works for us, is faith that will show itself in good deeds. Faith that works for us faith that works in our life is faith that will show itself in good deeds and good deeds done without faith does not do anything to nurture a meaningful connection to God neither ditch will do we cannot have meaningful connection with God and that's what our soul longs for we cannot have meaningful connection with God if faith is without deeds or if deeds are without faith okay if you would, out of reverence for God's Word, stand with me now for the remainder of this passage. Let's look at the second part of verse 18 and then through the end of the chapter. So now James gets back to the central thrust. He gets back to the, the side of the ditch which his readers spent most of their time on, and I suspect you and I do as well. The ditch where faith is only a concept. It's not really touching down. We enter into crisis, and we don't trust. We don't exercise faith. We scramble. And we try to make stuff happen. And we're not centered in him. We're off in the ditch. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Okay, you believe there's one God And that one God, many of the translations don't do this. English translations, some of them do. I think it should be capital O, one, capital G, God. I think what he's saying there is one God. If you subscribe to orthodoxy, if you believe there's one God, and he means that in the theological sense, if you are a good Jew and now you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in one God. You believe there's one God. Good But listen, even demons believe that and shudder. You say you believe in God in a kind of orthodox way. Well, that rises you to the level of the demonic. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You may be seated. So to illustrate his principle, James gives us two illustrations, one of which would have been strikingly familiar to all of his readers. The other one would have been, oh yeah, Bizarre example, James. The first one is Abraham. And Abraham is considered the father of faith. He may have been the first one to hear this kind of call from God. Hey, Abe, I want you to leave everything you know and follow me to a place I'm going to show you. Let's get started. And Abraham does. Sometime after that, God takes Abraham outside and Abraham is beginning to get old. And he's, his joints are aching. And he has no children. And this is one of the ways in which the ancient Near East, they measured wealth and purpose. And Abraham and his wife have no children. And God takes him outside. He's about seven, oh, let's see, he's, I can't remember, but he's a lot of centuries away from the nearest city. And he goes outside and he looks up at the stars. And God says, Count them if you can. What? Oh, It's a lie, God. That's right. That's going to be your descendants. Wow. And then at that point, he believes God. And the Bible says that God credited it to him as righteousness. So it's as if Abraham has a bank account, and God places in that bank account righteousness that now belongs to Abraham because of that belief. Well, sometime later, fast forward, Abraham has had a child in his considerable old age, the child of promise, Isaac. Abraham and his wife Sarah are so old when Isaac is born, it is first of all a miracle, and second of all seems very unlikely they're going to have any other children. And so Isaac is the guy, and they pour all of their love and their concern into Isaac. This room is full of suburban americans and we are what sociologists call helicopter parents constantly hovering around our kids because we love them so much and our lives center around them well abraham was at every soccer practice i mean abraham was constantly hovering around his kid because their world was about isaac and then in genesis chapter 22 there's this interesting exchange between god and abraham genesis 22 verse 1 says this sometime later god tested Abraham he said to him Abraham here I am Abraham replied they've had this kind of dialogue before then God said uh, to him take your son take your only son Isaac now see those of us who've read the New Testament there's a familiar ring to that we know somebody else who took their only son and put him up on a hill and sacrificed him but that other one went through with it for us. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, because I've seen you at every one of those Thanksgiving plays in the first, second, third, fourth grade, all soccer practices. He's terrible, by the way. I've seen the way you love him. And I want you to go to the region of Moriah and imagine how these next words tasted. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. That word tested actually has buried in it the nuance of strengthening. I'm reminded of a time when I was in seminary when I spent many, many months in a very disciplined way lifting weights. I had never been much of a weightlifter when I was younger when I was coming along 150 years ago they thought weightlifting hurt basketball so I never did any weightlifting plus I was this tall and I weighed about 74 pounds and so I would never be caught dead in a weight room but I thought I'm in seminary it's a bunch of preacher boys They're all a little bit sissy anyway. I can go to a weight room, and this will not be a big deal. I kid you not. This is a true story. So my roommate and I decided we're going to be disciplined. We're going to go for it. We're going to lift weights. And we did for a long time. But we go into the weight room the first day, and there's only one other person in there, and he was literally Mr. Florida. I'm not kidding. So we go in, and there's this guy who's as big as a house, and he was incredibly nice and put his weightlifting schedule on ours so he could teach us how to weightlift. Exactly. He was a nice guy. (laughs) He could also break us in half, but that's beside the point. So we're learning how to lift weights, and I don't even know if they do this anymore. I apologize to those of you who are really good, but pretty early on in the process, he had us on this routine, and pretty early on in the process of doing the bench press, and others, but mostly with the bench press, He introduced us to what he called negatives. And I'll never forget this. He said, this is where the payoff is. This is where the muscles really get tested. I'm looking at the weight saying, what do you mean? And he said, oh, okay, well, this is where the muscles really get broken down. And they're enabled to build up. So this is the part that will really test you. Okay, as if the rest of it hasn't, what do I do? Well, you get to the end of yourself. You can't lift any more. Then I'm going to lift it off of your chest and you let it come down as slowly as you can. That's really going to test you. God is testing Abraham because that's when the faith really gets broken down. That's when we can really get stronger. Abraham says, yes, He takes Isaac up, he builds the wood fire, and then he notices that God provides a ram caught in a bush, and he thanks God for his deliverance, he goes over and grabs the ram and sacrifices the ram. God says this, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. Verse 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. The actual quotation which James uses, as I said earlier, when James said, he quoted, Abraham believed in God and God, credited it to him as righteousness. That quote is from Genesis 15. This incident is from Genesis 22. What's happened is now Abraham's faith is being made complete by action. Now Abraham's faith is bearing fruit. Now Abraham's faith is strengthened so that He can be the Father of the faithful. So that all the people who will come after Him can be built on this foundation. It's got to be a strong one. So God tests it. What if our faith is being completed by some of the difficulties we face? What if our faith is being completed by some of the sacrifices with which we are confronted? One other little side note. Uh, you should know about this passage. Throughout the centuries, critics and scholars have made James and the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, they've made James and the Apostle Paul tussle with one another. They've kind of put them in the ring and let them battle it out with one another because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, "Yes, by grace you've, you're saved through faith, not of your works. It's got nothing to do with your works. Because you can't boast about anything. In the book of Galatians, he makes that argument even more elaborately. And he says, look, it's all about faith. It's faith that saves you. And interestingly, he uses Abraham as his example. And here's James using Abraham as an example of faith without works, useless. So scholars for centuries have had Paul and James tussle with one another, the answer is not that complicated. They're really not arguing about the same thing. When the Apostle Paul uses the word faith, what he means is bone-shattering, life-altering encounter with God at the end of which you say yes and you surrender. And your life is forever changed. And that kind of faith saves you. And it will, as Paul says in other places, inevitably end up... in. Righteous fruits pouring out of your life. James is using a completely different definition for faith. James is saying, look, if you have this idea that you believe in God and it doesn't show up in your life, that kind of idea, that kind of faith is useless. Paul is concept only faith. This is an intellectual idea and not on the ground. James is looking at the fruit our lives are bearing. If your life is all about your life, then your faith will be useless. Let me say it again. James is looking at the fruit our lives are bearing. And if your life is all about your life, then your faith will be fruitless. And it will be useless. And it will be dead. If you don't care for the neediest, if your life is not turned outward toward others, if you are not feeling called by God towards sacrifice and then offering that sacrifice, then your faith will be useless. For Diane and I, we felt this recently in the giving campaign that we've undergone at Gateway. We felt a call to sacrifice. And I know some of you did as well. I know families here at Gateway Who've been called to sacrifice for their extended families. They've been called to give exceedingly, and they've done so. I know other families here at Gateway who've been called to give sacrificially to someone in need here in our body, and they've done so. Others who have been called to give sacrificially to someone in need outside of our body, and you've done so, you're to be commended. But others of us have dodged those calls. I feel like I have at times in my life as well. Dodged the call to sacrifice, dodged the call when my faith was being tested and I've responded wrongly. And you need to know that in those circumstances, James literally questions our faith. How are you responding to the daily challenges and strains of life? Do you you lean into faith? Are your responses characterized by trusting in God? Is your connection to God the primary driver for you? When has your faith been put to the test in the last five years? Seriously, 15 seconds, think about that. When has your faith been put to the test in the last five years? And I know for all of you it has been. Family circumstances. Relational connection or lack thereof, children, finances, health. Uh, Diane and I talked to someone last night who has been told they may have cancer. They have to have a biopsy this week. This is a time of testing. When has your faith been tested in the last five years? How did you respond? You've been asked to give. Did you? You've undergone serious trial and you've been asked to trust. Did you? How have you performed? Let me say quickly, we have to be careful with this line of questioning. Because it can cause the wrong kind of focus. It can cause the focus that Jesus was most interested in eradicating from our faith. It can cause us to focus on all about what we do. It can make us what theologians call legalists. We're about checking boxes, and that's not the faith of Jesus. But we can't avoid this question, and we often do. We can't avoid the question of, what is the fruit of my life? How am I performing? We can't avoid that question because James is just too straightforward. He's too blunt. How have you performed? Some of us are really, really so good at giving ourselves a pass we don't step up to anything. Then James gives another example. Let's do this quickly. The second example is a woman named Rahab. And Rahab's story is an interesting one. Rahab was, Old Testament, was not a Jew. She's living in the city of Jericho. And this was the time when the Israelites have left Egypt. They've wandered in the desert. They're right at the Jordan River. They're about to cross over and come into the promised land, and take it over. They're going to ransack the place. So Rahab and, of course, the people in Jericho have heard stories about what the Israelites have done on the other side of the Jordan, and mostly they're afraid they don't want to have anything to do with the Israelites. And so Rahab decides, you know, I want to throw my lot in with those people, mostly to save her own skin. So two spies are sent in to kind of check out Jericho and they end up going to see Rahab and Rahab keeps the spies and protects them and makes a deal with them. Listen, I want to lean into your God. We've heard about your God. I want to be on your side. So tell me what to do. They explain to Rahab, okay, you know, protect us, let us look around and just tie something on your door and we won't attack you or your family when we destroy the city. Then she hides them and she lets them down outside the wall. They run a certain direction. The city officials come. Where are those strange men that came in here? We think there is light spies. Oh yes, they were here. They left. They went that direction when in fact she had sent them that way. And Rahab protects them. Here's the other thing that you should know about Rahab. She was a prostitute. (laughs) She was a prostitute. She sold herself for sexual favors. Rahab is not a hero of the faith until this she's had no uber encounter with god her faith even at this point is still pretty self-serving i want to save my skin and i believe your god can do it and yet god honors her faith and he uses it she's protected ultimately she marries a good jewish boy and becomes part of the lineage of jesus She is Jesus' great, 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 add several more, grandmother. To me, this story brings two principles to mind, and it may bring others to you, but I want to cut through some and do this quickly. This brings two principles to mind. Number one, it doesn't matter how far along you are in the journey. What matters is that you put feet to what you know. So, those of you this morning, if anyone this morning is trying to give themselves a pass, and, well, I'm just not, you know, I'm no Abraham. I'm not like one of these people here at Gateway, that I'm not. It doesn't matter where you are. What matters is that you're putting feet to what you know, what God has shown you. Second principle that this part of the story, this example, speaks to me is, it's about the level of sacrifice. The level of sacrifice which God asks of us, I believe, is always commensurate with the level of faith. God doesn't test our faith beyond the capacity of our faith. So what he asks of Rahab, he asks Rahab to essentially raise her hand and say, I'll hide you if you'll protect me. But Abraham, Abraham whom he's going to make the father of the faithful, Abraham whom he's spoken directly to and shown him his full character, he says of Abraham, Abraham, take your only son, the center of your life, and sacrifice him. I'll guarantee you that you today are being called to some kind of sacrifice or you will in the next six months. There's some kind of stretch of your faith that you are being called to or you will in the next six months. And it will be commensurate with your level of faith. How will you respond? How are you responding today? I want to end by speaking honestly about how this becomes practical for me. I'll just list a couple of ways that this touches down in my life I hope this is helpful. You may have other things that God is ruminating for you. Number one, when I exercise my faith, when I exercise my faith, then my faith inevitably will manifest itself in actions. That's just what faith does. So when I work my faith, my faith will work into my actions and into my life. When I pray, and when I seek out community, and when I pursue acts of service, then my faith bears fruit. My life will bear fruit. My faith comes to the surface. When my faith comes to the surface, it works for me. I'm less angry. I'm more patient. I'm more loving. I'm more positive. My relationships stay cleaner. I'm more effective. When I'm working my faith, my faith will work itself on the surface. And I've said this repeatedly over the years. I can't tell you how many times I've come to my own self or one of you has come to my office and says, I just don't sense God's presence at all. Well, are you working your faith at all? Because if you're not, your faith will not work, and if your faith doesn't work, it's useless. Second practical application for me. I recognize, because of what I just said, this is a diagnostic tool for me. If my life is all about me, then I know there's a problem. If I'm not producing fruit in my life, then there's a problem. If my faith is not being exercised on the surface of my life, I know there's a problem. There's a spiritual problem for me. And I can continue to do the same thing just like I'm doing and expecting different results and be an idiot, or I can try to address the problem with someone I know and love and trust. I can seek him more earnestly, I can try to follow hard after God. Because I know there's a problem. I don't say this to make any of us feel guilty. Look, problems that exist on the surface of our lives, it may be because of overwhelming anxiety, or depression, or grief. And these are things we all understand, and they must be worked through, but they must be worked through. We have to stay after it. We can't let it overwhelm us, because our faith will be useless. It could be because of overwork or just the resulting frenetic schedule. We've all been there. But we can't stay there because our faith will not work for us. If my life is not bearing any fruit, then I know there's a problem and I don't want to live like that indefinitely. In order for my faith to work for me, my faith must work. Faith without works is dead.